gorgeous. Wish you were here. Gorgeous. Wish you were here. Meg Ryan, French Kiss. By my estimation, one of the most underrated romantic comedies ever. That is a great movie. Kevin Klein, Meg Ryan, old school romantic comedy. Love that movie. Today, you might have guessed we're going to be talking about beauty. We're going to be talking about creating beauty. We're going to talk about the communal nature of beauty. We're going to talk about whether beauty points us to something greater, Isaiah's human dignity a creative force behind everything, meaning and purpose, and then how we turn at times, at all times, whether we're happy or sad, how meaningful art and music and movies and all the beautiful things we create become to us in understanding the the narrative of our own life, that we draw these other things in to help us to deal or to lift us up or to give us perspective or correct our course or inspiration or inspiration or whatever. So let's call this episode beautiful things and let's get going. Number one, let's talk about the creation of beautiful things. There's a couple of different things about this that I want to talk about because I don't think we have a choice. We'll talk about that a lot today. I don't think we have a choice. I think we are creative by nature. I think we just have to make things, but, but the creative efforts of other people and the beauty of the world around us inspires the creation of even more beautiful things. Think about artists and what they see that inspire them to paint landscapes, beautiful landscapes, women and men, beautiful human figures or the cross. How many artists have felt it necessary, desire, a, a will to create art that points us back to the cross? I mean, I think in just that idea, you can see this on a major level playing out throughout history and art, but you also see it in a lower level as well. And what I mean by lower, I don't mean by less than, well, yeah, sure, right? I mean, I when I'm talking about like chalk art drawings, like when, when this whole thing started, shelter in place started when we were socially distanced ourselves and our lives changed overnight. I thought one of the most fascinating things was the immediate participation for some people in this idea of chalk drawing. We did it. We did crosses and stained glass windows and we found out it takes a lot of chalk to do chalk art on our particular driveway. I don't know what it is about our driveway that just eats chalk up, but clearly two drawings and I loved it. We loved the practice of chalk, chalk drawing and we did chalk messages to people as well. Like happy birthdays. I was unprepared for how much chalk it took to reach my vision. I'm, I'm, an, I'm a very ambitious guy. Once I start to do stuff, I get obsessed with it. And I had this idea about the chalk drawings that I wanted to do. And I just did not have the resources available to do it. But that was inspired by other people doing that. And you saw it, this, this movement. And then, of course, I tried to do better than people in my neighborhood, and I, I'm doing the best that I can. And then I go online, and I'm completely shamed by real artists who are out there doing these magnificent works, some of them 3D with depth and perception and all that, 
all of that stuff. Oh, it's just amazing. But art inspiring art and the beauty of this world inspiring things, keeping everybody creating. We see beauty. We see others creating and we're inspired by it. I can't tell you how many times I've personally felt just done. Just I'm frustrated. I don't want to create anything anymore. And I do things. I have ideas about what I want. I'm writing novels and stories that I hope one day to be published. I'm getting older, so I have to get much more serious about pursuing that publication. And sometimes you just get done. I don't really want to create anymore. But then you see somebody create something. You read a book. I'll see a movie. Something about it. Some act of creation that creates some, that just makes something beautiful that's shared with all of us. And I'm reminded about how important it is sometimes just to see the great things that we can do, how life-changing it can be. So the first thing about the importance of the creation of beauty in our culture is to remember that it, it inspires beauty. We, we've, there was a line in the movie Tomorrowland. I like the movie Tomorrowland. A lot of people hate that movie. It's weird to me how much people dislike that movie or the strong feelings that people have about it. But one of the underlying messages of that movie was that all of the media and the ways that we talk about things are, as they put it in the movie, feeding the wrong wolf. We're feeding despair. We're feeding fear. And man, have you ever felt that more than you did in the last few months? How many people are online seeing the end of it all? And constantly talking about yet another horrifying possible aspect of all of this. And when you interject beauty into that, by will create beauty, you inspire other people to stop wallowing in fear and anger or, 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 or loneliness or isolation. And maybe we touch them and create more, inspire more, and then they create and inspire more. Now, another aspect I think that's important about the act of creation, the act of creating art and beauty, is that it's work. That's an underappreciated act. We see and sometimes worship these false images in movies or in books of these isolated created forces. And so that can, that can undermine the idea of how hard it should, it does in some way undermine the idea of how hard artists work. One of my favorite things that I have ever heard was Glenn Fry in a documentary about the Eagles talking about living under Jackson Brown. And he said, that was where I learned how to write songs. And as he described it, he said, Jackson Brown would get up, make a pot of tea, sit down at his piano and just start working, working on a song. And he'd do that for a couple hours and he'd get up, make another pot of tea and then go back and work. And then he may get up and eat and come back and work. And Glenn Fry said he would do this for days. And you would just hear him working, working, working. And he said, and after a long enough time of him working on it, suddenly that thing that he started working on initially, which may have been discordant or not anywhere near what it would be as a finished product, began to materialize. And you began to hear the song that he was writing moving towards completeness. And Glenn Fry said, oh, so that's how you do it. 
It's just hard work. You just got to work really, really hard. And think about the creative people that we know that were like that. Johann Sebastian Bach in his pursuit of creating music that glorified God drove the people that worked with him hard to the point that was often resentment built up about how insanely hard he was to work with because every single aspect of what he was creating needed to glorify God. And he wouldn't accept anything less from himself or from the people working with him. It was hard work. Walt Disney frustrated his brother Roy, who was always thinking of the bottom line, while his brother was always looking at what they just did and said, the next thing we have to do is innovate again. And he drove people around him to work hard at this act of creating, and created a whole new art form in feature-length animated movies. But he was always pushing boundaries, always innovating, always trying to find the next thing, never comfortable with the last thing that he did was. We need to appreciate that. Because I was reading, and every time, every time you read a serious artist in any particular field, they'll tell you about the moment before they start and as they begin to work on any, whether it's a writer, whether it's a songwriter, whether it's an artist, there's a moment of, of resistance, whether it's a psychological resistance or the sense that Andrew Peterson talks about it as the, the forces that would not like beautiful things being brought into this world, the forces that would like darkness in this world and not light pushing back that moment that you step out and begin to create something beautiful for your community. And it's discouraging and frustrating, but they push through and they work and they work. Writers write, musicians play, artists paint, and they just keep painting and playing and singing and writing. And they're disciplined about it until suddenly They've written enough words, enough paragraphs, enough pages, enough chapters that they have a book, a full story. They've refined the music so much they have a song. They have put the last stroke on their masterpiece on the canvas. And they work their way to that point. So beauty begets beauty. And the creation of a beautiful thing for your community requires investment, time, and hard work. And that's an important thing. I've said that twice now for your community. It is created by community. It's inspired by your community, the people in it, the world that you live in. It has context, whatever it is that you're creating. And not only does the community participate in its creation, but great art fosters that community. Even if it's art that is meant to divide us, the division is to draw us to a better understanding of what community ought to be. And for that particular thing, I'm thinking of Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. When I was in college and when I was younger, I worked in theater productions, both in school and then a little, little tiny dabbling outside of school. And I remember one of my professors and I talking one day about theater and she particularly didn't care for David Mamet. And she and I were discussing Mamet. She felt Mamet was too divisive by nature. Now, I still love Mamet. I don't agree with her on that. 
But I do agree with her point when she and I were chatting about the idea that art and theater ought to bring the community. It ought to build community. It ought to foster community. It ought to help us collectively be what we ought to be. Obviously, as a Christian, I believe it ought to draw us both closer to God and to our neighbors, whom we are to love as ourselves. And that's what we should be doing through art. And it's, it's Andrew Peterson, again, you read him and he talks about the, the communal nature of creating art. And I've noticed that in writing. I used to think writing was something I was supposed to do on my own. And then when I started writing, I noticed that the collaborative effort of working with editors and other people looking at my work and telling me what they liked or didn't like made my final piece better. Whatever I was writing, if I got other people involved, it ended up being better. As a matter of fact, I told a young man in college that recently. He said, what do I need to know about writing? I said, you need to know that it's a team effort. That getting other people involved helps finding those people that you trust to be able to look at what you're writing and help you find a better way to meet the goal that you have set for yourself. Songwriters say the same thing. It's working with other people, letting them hear it, hearing their ideas. There's a community nature to the creative act. And we have falsely, I think, celebrated and worshipped these people who isolate themselves in destructive ways from their community, who become so fiercely married to what they've done that they reject any input from the outside. Temperamental argument of self-destructive artists. We love those people. We put we, we make movies about them. Isn't it glorious? Isn't it awesome? Look at them self-destruct and ultimately die from drug addiction or some other thing like that. And they miss the idea that the very act of creating should be something that they do within their community. And involving other people isn't a compromise of who I am. It recognizes that even though I may bring a great idea in most of the execution to the table, the ultimate end, my goal will probably be more efficiently and better reached when I get other people involved to help me get it there because it's not just about me but the other thing it does is it builds community art music how many times have you just been in a group there's a there's a great scene in the movie almost famous where this band and these people and these friends and this group is just sick of each other the road has just made them hate each other the grind of this career has just made them dislike each other and they're all sitting silent, ignoring each other on a bus. And somebody starts to sing Tiny Dancer. The song comes on and they start to sing along with it. Elton John's Tiny Dancer. Before you know it, the whole bus is singing along and they're smiling. And it's brought them back together. I, for years, I, I spoke at a nursing home. For five years... I spoke at a local nursing home, which was a fantastic experience. One of the greatest experiences of my life did more than almost anything else I've ever done to prepare me for a life in ministry, because you just have to have a good reason to go speak at a nursing home. It's a pure service thing. And so I remember though, and, and with at the nursing home, depending on who was working there was the number of people that you would get to come and experience it with you. Sometimes you'd go and there would be only a handful of people there. Three. I remember having an audience of three people one time when I was doing the sermon and singing the songs. 
But one particular time, we had a bunch of people, a lot. And my wife's Uncle Andy, who, who played, would come and visit, he played the accordion. And he came and visited with me. And while I was speaking, suddenly, when we got done, we said, we're going to play a few songs for everybody. And they, they'd been listening, and family had been there and participating. Multiple, you know, we're talking about maybe 30 or 40 people in this room, many of them in varying levels of awareness of what's going on because of medication, because of dementia, all of these things affecting this room where we're speaking. And he started to play, Let Me Call You Sweetheart. And we started singing. And when I say we, I mean suddenly everyone in the room was singing. Everyone. Man, that song connected to something deep inside of them. And it was beautiful. For a moment, they all heard, all remembered something different individually, but that song was such a strong connection for all of them to who they were in their past that it drew them out and back together. Family members that were there had been visiting their their loved ones, weeping at the beauty of it. This song, this moment, drawing everybody back together. Man, that is what beauty should do. So the next segment is something totally new. This is a new section to the Human Things podcast. And I brought on my friend, Megan Allman from Life Training Institute, somebody that I have worked with for almost a decade at LTI. And I know privately and personally when we talked has a, a deep interest in the discussion about beauty and art and what it means to us as human beings. Uh, so this is a really a big deal for you, Megan. You were the first guest ever on Human Things podcast. I mean, you, you've got to feel really good about that right now, right? This is a special moment for you. You know, like 100 years from now, this is going to be the answer to Trivial Pursuit game or whatever passes <laughs> For trivial pursuit and the transhumanist hell that we have made by then for society, but you know this is uh, this is groundbreaking, really, the first moment. So thank you for coming on. Oh, it's my honor, and I, since I was probably the first fan of Human Things, yes, and, and um, <laughs> almost the only fan of Human Things. Well, too. we had this conversation because you stole my potential title that I was dreaming in, about. So, <laughs> but I, I'm not know, I, I was like a pit bull on that phrase like when i saw that when i saw that c.s lewis video making rounds and it said let us be found doing human things yeah i mean i was like i am stealing it and i was like chris pratt on parks and rec i was like i call band name right like right there i call podcast name i got it uh, yep so, um, <laughs> well so, I'm, I'm honored honored to be on <laughs> so let's act like we're serious for a moment okay so what okay. i wanted to bring you on to talk about uh, was this, 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 is, this subject is beauty, right? The human thing that we're doing today is talking about creating beauty, admiring beauty, just the role that beauty plays in our lives. Art, music, novels, all the different ways that we experience it in the world around us. And so what I wanted to talk with you about as somebody of a comrade in arms out there talking about uh, the value of human life, mm -hmm. as we reflect on it personally and at this moment, especially during the coronavirus, does beauty communicate something more uh, than just the, that moment of appreciation? How does it contribute to how we think about human beings and what it means to be a human being? And, and more importantly to me too, 
how does it communicate that there's something more, or even does it communicate that there's something more to this world than just the things that we see out there? So, you know, no big deal. Just answer that for me. Go ahead. Just all that. Just all um, that. Just the mysteries no, I, of the universe. Knock yourself out. <laughs> well, it, I mean, it is a mystery of the universe. And um, one of my favorite philosophers in the whole world is Peter Kreeft. And when I hear him talk about beauty um, on this particular thing about mystery, he talks about the French philosopher, Gabriel Marcel, who's one of his favorite philosophers, who talks about that very thing, that somehow beauty is one of these great mysteries that philosophers love to um, kind of spend, dedicate their lives to, yeah. kind of like questions of um, why are we good? Why are we evil? What does it mean to live well? You know, these types of things because you never really each reach the end of those types of mysteries. And I think when it comes to beauty, um, part of the mystery is that it, like we are it in a sense. Um, there's a beauty to being human such that because we are, um, try to be, let's see, let me, let me search for Christ's kind of explanation. Because God is this kind of supreme subject, like he's the ultimate of personalities, right? Mm -hmm. uh, he is beautiful, uh, and, and, and so everything that's beautiful comes from him. We can talk about that kind of transcendent source and why that's important and, and all of that yeah. in a bit, but um, because he's this, this supreme subject, he can't really like step outside of himself and, 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 and objectify the thing that, that, it, that he's studying. Um, yeah. so, so similarly, like we are subjects. We are made in his image. He miraculously made like beings who aren't just being like we, we're persons with bodies and, and location and, and all of that um and similarly we can't like step outside of ourselves and fully objectify ourselves in order to study ourselves um so there's always going to be this little bit of mystery about beauty because it's really wrapped up in what we are and who yeah. we are yeah roger scruton talked about too in his book the, the little short introduction to beauty mm -hmm. he talks about this idea of being disinterested and that's what makes beauty different from other feelings. So he doesn't mean uninterested. Uh, what he means is that we, we admire beauty without any interest invested in the, the object of beauty. Uh, and, and, and to say that as, easy, as, as clear as possible, he said, like, if you're happy and enjoying watching your kids play, there's an emotional investment in the lives of those kids, right? There's some connection there. Or if you're happy or enjoying... Uh, the fruits of something that, that you're intaking or, 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 or some success at work. And all of these things, we're interested. We have vested interest in the object that's bringing us joy. He said that beauty, though, when we're admiring something as a, as a work of art or as just beautiful for its own sake, we're disinterested. And what he means is that it is a moment where we enjoy something for the sake of that thing uh that that thing is beautiful it, it does nothing for me it doesn't offer me anything it doesn't in any way advance my interest in this world but at the same time i can just stop and stare at it and that's weird right yeah because that's one of the things scruton says we're the only animal that does this on earth we're the only yeah. ones that that are tied into it and we have been from the beginning right as soon as you can mm -hmm. find human civilizations you find us making beautiful things, making art. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. Go ahead. I wonder about even those cave drawings and things. Like yeah. people kind of really kind of try to over explain maybe what was going on. And sometimes I wonder, I wonder if they're just drawing it for the sake of 
they saw this creature and it was so wonderful. They had to do their yeah. best to just reproduce it. It was art. It was the first type of art. Um, and even the ancients thought about beauty in that way. They knew there was something about it that caused, like, they knew that it was something that you know when you see. It was more than yeah. just a, oh, I'm just going to explain and wrap my head around all of this because they were, they were understanding it in terms of what it did to them. Um, you know, Plato was one of those. Um, I think about Plotinus and the way he talked about beauty. He talked about it being kind of this out-of-body experience. Um, like the same kind of thing that Scruton was saying, this kind of disinterested because, because you're not focused on yourself at all. Yeah. So it is kind of a, it's like stepping outside of yourself for a moment. And I think everyone listening or, or watching is probably in some way experienced something like that. When you encounter something in the world, whether it's a piece of music, um, I can remember uh, seeing for the first time in an art class in college, the, uh, the Bernini sculpture is called The Ecstasy of St. Teresa. Um, and it's absolutely this, this beautiful sculpture, but I remember just looking at it and this was on a screen, like on a projector screen yeah. and having one of those experiences where you're like, I'm not sure I'm going to get back in my body. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I've it, done that almost, at the high museum where I've just yes. I've stood in front of a work of art just forever. There's a, there's a sculpture and there's a similar sculpture in the movie Pride and Prejudice. At the high, there's a sculpture at the high museum where it's a, a veiled woman right and and somehow the the artist has made the veil look so fragile right i mean it's it's sculpted it's it's marble and yet something about the 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 veil i've just sat there and stared at it and wonder and like you said it's a i'm out right i'm no longer it's no longer has anything to do with me or my life or or any utility and and, and going back to i think that you said something funny about the cave drawings as people wonder why people made those drawings, I, I wonder why they wonder. I mean, as I'm talking, I'm, I know I'm painfully aware that one of my kids' artwork things is on the wall behind me. Uh, <laughs> and, and I remember being a kid, and even now, uh, you just, sometimes you just draw, right? I mean, sometimes you're just, cre our creativity is a part of the image bearer of God, but the ultimate creator, the ultimate maker and sustainer of all things. Uh, his nature was creative. And he, he birthed all of this. And, and so we bear that mark and you see it in us as a differentiation from us. Going back to those cave drawings, I think G.K. Chesterton, the everlasting man said, you know, one of the, the differences between us and all the other animals on this planet is that if you look back to the very first moments that we exist as a society, as we start to come together as communities, there's evidence of us drawing and expressing ourselves and putting putting paintings on the walls and, and creating art. And as long as we've been here, no other animal does it at all. They just have no interest in it in the same way. So it is mysterious, but here's where the mystery gets even weirder, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because the discussion of it, not just as art and like that thing on the wall behind me, which is beautiful to me because my kids did it, but I don't think the rest of the world would look at it and would be in awe of it. Um, but objective art right I mean we've all heard and, and I think more people today when I talk to them than don't make claims like beauty is in the eye of the beholder yeah and then use that in a sense to relativize art altogether where I think Roger Scruton pushes back on his very short introduction he says one of the a priori uh, things that we can consider about art when we're, we're wrestling with beauty is that 
everyone would accept the idea that some things are more beautiful than others. And that runs up against that idea that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, that's kind of the, the motto of today, that beauty is this entirely subjective thing, that it's all a matter of preference or personal taste. Yeah. And um, I, I just, that, that bugs me because we all, like, when you encounter beauty, um, and even back to Plotinus, he talked about it in, in such a way, he said, you recognize it. Yeah. You remember something. And I love that he says recognize because he doesn't say you cognize it. Yeah. He says you recognize. There's something there that, that reminds you of, of something you know. Um, and you don't really know why you know it, but you know it. It, it kind of sneaks past all your defenses and captivates. And, and we, don't, we don't have a, you know, a full understanding. Again, that mystery is there. But if we're going to say beauty is just in the eye of the beholder, and we make it this entirely subjective thing, then we, we make it something that's not even real. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and, and that idea of you recognize, we're recognizing something about it, right? That it yeah. is when we see something truly and objectively beautiful. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that there's a way here, which it's like talking about objective moral values, right? I mean, I've, mm -hmm. I was just recently having a conversation with a young guy who was struggling with the idea that objective moral values exist. Yeah. Even though as we went through and talked about there's aspects of it that are difficult to understand, but then there's another part that we bump up against, which is that we see them and experience them all the time in our life. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, I think, the same thing here. The idea that during, one of the first things my wife and I started doing when we were in shelter in place was we started taking walks around our neighborhood. Yeah. And my wife said, you know, it's remarkable how beautiful our neighborhood is, right? The walk isn't just about health, which it is about. Uh, but there's also something for her that as we walked, we're experiencing Georgia's a very green state. I mean, if you've never been to Georgia and spent time here, particularly in the summer and the spring, I don't think you really fully understand what green is. I mean, we have so many different, it's just everywhere. Everything is green all the time. And in the midst of all that greenness, there's, there's rabbits jumping around in our neighborhood and, and <laughs> raptors of all sorts, these huge hawks that fly over and owls perched up. And we live in an old neighborhood with these very big established hardwood trees all around mm -hmm. us. And the experience is beautiful. And, and to the point that when we went out one day and a lot of people were doing yard work, and I said, isn't it great to see everybody out working in the yard? And my wife said, yeah, it's great. But it's disrupting the beauty a little bit when you hear the, <laughs> the background noise, right? I mean, th there's something yeah. about it. And so we recognize something real about it. This is yeah. beautiful. Yeah, uh, I think my go-to for that is C.S. Lewis, um, which... <laughs> Who doesn't go to C.S. Yeah. Lewis, right? Yeah. But it's just a, it's uniquely a, it's a, you. <laughs> Who is me. this C.S. Lewis guy? I've never heard of him in Christian circles. Yeah, some story. guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think a lot of people would go to The Weight of Glory and, and, and things like that, which has, we could, oh man, could we talk about it there? This, this idea of wanting to just be absorbed into it, which is kind of yeah. what it does to us. But I go to, in talking about the objectivity of beauty, I think about when he wrote in The Abolition of Man which is not a work particularly about beauty, but a work about um, the objectivity of values. Like we can't yeah. lose that. We can't just toss it aside. And in the first chapter of that book, he's talking about the way these uh, writers in this child's, uh, like I think it was like a language arts book or something, for, like a school book for children. Mm -hmm. And he was editing it and all that kind of stuff. But then he, he, he got to some language that bothered him. 
because it wasn't the teaching of the, the language arts that was bothering him or whatever subject it was. It was the, the way that they were teaching other things about how values are subjective that was dangerous. Yeah. And so he, he had this little exchange, in, got to this exchange in the book about um, two men talking about a cataract or a waterfall. And one of the men described the waterfall as sublime, which is similar to beautiful. Mm -hmm. This is fantastic. Yeah. And the other one said it was pretty. And uh, the, the writer of the book kind of criticized the guy who called it sublime um, and kind of did like reduced what he was talking about just to his feelings. So here yeah. we have a situation. The guy's looking at a waterfall. He says, this is sublime. And the writer of this book says, oh, he's just talking about his feelings, his personal preferences. And Lewis jumped all over that. And he said, no, he's not. He can't be talking about his personal feeling. His feelings aren't sublime. The only way to get this situation right, the only way to look at it is if a man is looking at a waterfall and describes it as sublime, if the statement is about his feelings, his feelings would have to be the exact opposite. Yeah. The reason the waterfall is really sublime is because it humbled him. He was having humble feelings, not, not sublime feelings. So the uh, point of this whole thing is that Lewis is saying the sublimity that, or we could say the beauty of this thing was really there. It's a real attribute of the waterfall. It's not just reduced to our feelings about the waterfall because our feelings have to be an exact opposite to recognize what's going on. Yeah, and then the same way when we talk about objective moral values, I would say there's a testimony of the world to the beautiful things in it, right? Because it's, yeah. it's not to say that, just like our moral senses can be corrupted, our aesthetic senses can be corrupted. Uh, there are things that we can, uh, like you, we can diminish beauty intentionally in a sense of elevating irony so that we can diminish beauty. Uh, you know, and I've done stupid things like that. Like if you show a video <laughs> of somebody making bacon and I say, isn't it beautiful? I don't really mean that, right? I mean, I don't really see beauty in the frying of bacon. I'm just being a jerk or, or, or whatever at that moment. <laughs> but it, it does diminish, right? I mean, that sort of that ironic culture that we live in is bringing beauty down. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a tearing things down. One of the things that I have said uh, to other people personally and conversationally is that I think that we as a culture have lost creativity. Uh, and so all that's left is to corrupt the beautiful and, and, and to corrupt the institutions that have carried society. And I think a great illustration of this, this dumbing down of our ability to create and to just attacking the things that came before us institutionally would be just think of all the dumb movies that are out bad mom, bad teacher, bad Santa, TV show, bad judge, bad grandpa. And, and this one, those are just a list of the things where we're, we take these beautiful institutions that have existed and that have been the backbone of society and we just tear them apart. And we do the same thing with art, right? And when we can't make new things, all we do is make, we make old, we mock old things. We, we bring up a new thing and we mock something and bring it down to our level. Uh, to some degree or another, we're losing a sense of that, that elevation of true art that i did that there are truly beautiful things and some things are more beautiful than others but here's the thing when i say that the world testifies to true beauty whatever broken cultures become broken in their aesthetics however that happens what we do see is over a long enough time the really beautiful things survive yeah right the the, the history is vicious I mean, in the sense of that most of us are 
aggressively forgotten and wiped from the pages of history. Even our own families don't remember us a couple of generations from now. Yeah. But, but then some piece of art, and maybe even something like when you talk about somebody like Van Gogh, who during his time, people didn't appreciate him at all. Mm-mm. But there's something beautiful there. And we, we value, it survived, right? We couldn't let it go. I talk about that with people as well. We couldn't let it go. We had to hold on to it. And, and so history and people will testify to true beauty in a way that this dismissive, ironic, and relativistic culture doesn't. Yeah. Oh, I have a, um, a professor of mine, uh, John Mark Reynolds, and I remember him saying in class, you know, history has a way of shaking out the things that really matter. Yeah. Uh, and I love that saying, it's just like what you're talking about, but yes, I, I've noticed that if you are a student of history and so many aren't really, and maybe that's part of, that's, that's a, that's has to be a, a facet of the problem. Um, when we look at the way that, that things have changed on down the line. And, and of course you and I would definitely say ideas have consequences and the ways yep. that these ideas have passed down and trickled down has affected where we are. It wasn't that the ancients, looked around and didn't see the brokenness of the world. If anything, they, they looked around and, and felt it more than we do. I mean, we have all these, what would uh, Pascal would call them diversions, all these yeah. distractions, um, the abilities to numb pain that they didn't have. And they turned to the beautiful as a way of, of coping with that, as a way of expressing there's something more, there's something better. We, there's, there's so much to live for even in the midst of all this brokenness. And then we look yeah. at what's happened to that. Like the, I, I was asking students the other day because I was giving a, a, a talk like this one um, to a group. And I was asking them real quick for just some rapid feedback because on these online platforms, you know, you want them to <laughs> be engaged. But I asked them, what do you think of right off the top of your head when I say the word beauty? And it was interesting to see their answers. Now, some of them have been, you know, formed by the church and formed by great traditions. So they would say things like nature or um, human beings, the human face, you know, they're kind of more on the right track than some others. But if you Google beauty right now, like if you just put the word beauty into your Google search engine, I've done it. And I guarantee what will come up is it's not that dangerous, but but I did, it's an experiment. And what came up is just, you could scroll and scroll and scroll. And what you would see are images of a particular kind of woman's face and mm. advertisements for cosmetics, just page after page, after page, after page, yeah. that's what comes up. So what we have is, uh, oh, to back to my story though, I, I asked those students, what do you think the answer would have been if we had asked Da Vinci that question? because the air that he breathed yeah. in his culture was so different than the air that we breathe. Um, back to Peter Kraft, he would say, we've taken beauty and shoved it away in museums and we build strip malls <laughs> instead of, why don't we live in the museums and shove the ugly stuff away? Yeah. Um, it's just so, so reverse of what it used to be. And it is true that, that the artists now, I think in large part because of the ideas that have trickled down and their reaction to it, have started to make art that is more to shock or to um, kind of make things more interesting or to provoke or to disturb. Um, I wonder sometimes if that's a reaction to all that's happened. Um, but, but I think both ways are ways of dealing with all the broken that's going on. And I think I was thinking about this just uh, the other day before that other lecture. And one of the things I came to is because beauty 
has that effect because it sneaks past all your defenses and just yeah. grabs hold of you in ways that other things can't. That's why it's such a necessary part of the human experience. Uh, it just, it just, it shapes our souls when we encounter beauty. Um, because it does that, I wonder that when people encounter beauty now, because encountering beauty isn't all pleasure here and now. And in fact, oh. the, you know, people who really thought about it understand that it's, it actually, it hurts. Beauty is, it is pleasurable, but it's also painful and a little bit terrifying yeah. when you encounter true beauty. And I wonder sometimes in the culture that we live in, um, Roger Scruton said, this cult of ugliness, talking about the world of art, this cult of ugliness, um, one word is written large on all these ugly things, and that word is me. Um, because it's not about the disinterest or about all about the other. It, it's become all about me. And I think when people encounter true beauty, it threatens that because it really kind of dethrones you um, and shows you how small you are in the significance of all that is. Um, which I think the Christian worldview has so much room for that as a good thing. But yeah, there's a great moment too. And, um, and I've seen Warren Smith online talking about this, I think on, I think Warren, Warren Cole Smith from World Magazine talking about this on his Facebook page that he has a scene in Ferris Bueller's Day Off that he loves the museum scene. <laughs> awesome. Uh, and and the, that whole, he said, that's just a beautiful scene, right? Where, where, especially when Cameron is so absorbed into that piece of artwork until he sees that faceless figure in there and identifies it with what he's feeling, what he's sensing, you know, and, and uh, Andrew Peterson's book, Adorning the Dark, he talks about how, you know, sometimes it's the songwriter's job to feel sad and to share that sadness, right? It's not just about joy or happiness. Sometimes the artist is, share, is, is sharing whatever is true and good and beautiful and what they're producing. And sometimes the end result of that isn't intended to make you feel great. Sometimes it's meant to shake you up. And I think there we get back to the original point that we were making and, and, and that idea that we were made, if, if I, you know, as Christians, we believe we're the image bearers of God, created by him both for community and for purpose, and that we reflect him in some ways. And even that gets mysterious and difficult to discuss if we go too far into it. Yeah. But one of those evidences of something more is this sense to create beauty to me. Um, because as, as you and I conversationally talked about earlier, uh, you know, pregnancy is a weird thing, but it's a weird thing that's universally enjoyed throughout the human condition, right? Yeah. It's an odd relation. It's a unique and bizarre relationship between a mother and her child that goes on during that early part of development. And it's strange and it's hard to understand and it's hard to grasp all that's going on in that relationship between the two of them. And, and there's no analogy to it. I agree with, with philosophers that said there's nothing analogous to that weird relationship but it's a weird relationship that every single human being on earth experienced, just like objective moral values. How we know them is weird, but it's even weirder is to try to imagine that the world doesn't have them, uh, mm -hmm. that things like rape and genocide aren't objectively wrong. That's far weird, weirder to me than finding some way to reconcile myself to the idea that there are things that are truly good and things that are truly bad, and that I can know those things in some mysterious way that I'm not able to talk to people about. And that's where beauty is the same thing to me, right? We all have seen something beautiful. And just the fact that that aesthetic sense can be corrupted or it can be diminished 
or that we can be uh, we can cast it off and, and, and say everything's beautiful and then be those fools at that museum that are gawking over a pair of eyeglasses that somebody intentionally oh. put on the floor to make everybody look silly so they could gather around it and talk about the importance of it when it was just a pair of eyeglasses that somebody dropped on the floor. We, 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 can, we can crush it down as a culture. We can become stupid and uncreative. But at the end of the day, we can't take away the universal human experience that there are beautiful things in this world. And some things that are so beautiful, like you said, that are scary and they're disruptive to our worldview in a good way. They remind us of important things, bring yeah. us back. Uh, yeah. and, and, and for me, and I'm going to talk about this in a moment when you and I are done too, uh, it, it, it leads to those moments when those are either darkest or happiest or most troubled. So much of that will have a, a soundtrack to it or a vision of a, a painting or, or we'll seek out some art to restore us back to community. We're not alone. Someone else has experienced this, felt this and created something beautiful out of it. Yeah, the artist, that's what the artist does. I, um, Dorothy Sayers, my hero, she talks about that in her essay on aesthetics. Um, Andrew Peterson <laughs> in his Wing Feather Saga, which my kids and I just, we, we, my whole family enjoyed that, that series of books, highly recommend it. But one of the, the lines that's repeated often in that book is from the mother figure, Nia, to her children when she says, remember who you are. Remember who you are. Um, but I also think about even, even Shakespeare, who, I mean, hello, Shakespeare, who understood human nature, kind of like Jane Austen. We were talking yeah. about that in another conversation. People who Charles just Charles Dickens, uh, another person. <laughs> yes. yeah. Yeah. Um, but in A Midsummer Night's Dream, where Shakespeare um, it, it is, it, well, Shakespeare's writing, but in the final kind of act of that book, where this, this king figure um, who, who is set to marry Hippolyta, right? Theseus is set to yeah. marry Hippolyta. And Theseus throughout this whole play has been like, not a lover of poetry. And in yeah. fact, at the beginning of Act Five, he lets us know why he's not. <laughs> and it's the most poetic part of the whole play. Yeah. <laughs> it's so ironic. But what he says in that play is uh, he talks about a local habitation. That, that's what the poet does. Like the poet's eye and fine frenzy rolling from earth to heaven, from heaven to earth. And what the pen does is give to these, these mysterious things a local habitation and a name. And that's what the artist does when they produce something. They, they mm. give these mysterious experience, these experiences you're talking about, a local habitation and a name. It's a picture of the incarnation. Yeah. It's what it is. When we create, we, 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 we do something like that. And other people recognize it when they encounter it, which is why Flannery O'Connor, you know, when, when somebody said, explain your story to me. And she's like, I don't have to read the story. That is yeah. the experience. <laughs> that's what I want um, you to get out of it. Right. Read the story. Yes, just read the story. Um, that's, that's just, that's what, that's what art does. And, and, and um, I like what man, you said earlier, it grabs us where we are. Yeah. It draws us out of ourselves. Yeah. It, it reminds us of our place in the community and the place in this world. And in that sense that we get to, in some pathetically small, mortal human way, mm -hmm. participate in the creative act in the way that the ultimate creator made us to, yeah. it's, it's, it's a small miracle. It's right? a small miracle. Yeah. And it's also a way that we fight back. Oh, great. Yeah. Oh yeah. my God. I think about this particular time, just, just the fact that you and Tracy were walking um, in the neighborhood and, and, and enjoying the captivating beauty that was yep. all around you, that, that you know, 
um, Chesterton, like the, the world will never starve for want of wonders, but it will starve for want of wonder, just taking the time to notice. Um, but in doing that, it's a pushback to say, no, you can, the world can be broken. It is broken, but it can't kill all of this. Um, you know, I, I tell a story to students about the, the cellist uh, in Sarajevo, which was a real story that happened. A man named uh, Vedran Smilovic was a, a Bosnian, he was part of the, the orchestra there in Sarajevo, which was a city of high arts. And back in the Bosnian war, when the city was under siege for like four years, it was being bombed every single day. Snipers mm. taking out people in the streets. It was a horrendous uh, thing from like 1992 to 1996. And uh, the story goes that Vedran was in his apartment one day when there were people in the market square who were in line to buy food, um, just civilians. And a mortar was fired into that market square. And in a moment, it killed 22 uh, men, women, and children. And in response to that horrendous thing, which was happening daily mm. to them, but in response to that horrendous moment, Vidran did the only thing he could think of in response. He took his cello and he went and he sat in the crater as the debris and things were being cleared away and he began to play his cello. He played a particular piece of music um, that I can't remember off the top, Adagio, Adagio in G minor. Um, each day in that spot, in the open, where snipers could have taken him out at any moment. And he did it for 22 consecutive days, one day for each victim. And what I know about that is that people looked on and they saw what he was doing and it stopped them in their tracks. Because in the midst of all of this horror, this man was, it was his battle cry. It was his act of defiance. And he's the one who was saying, you can kill and you can take and you can maim and you can break, but you cannot kill this. Um, and what a wonderful, I, I just, I, it just, I, I get chills all over my that's body. It. I might cry thinking that, about it. That right there is why you're my first guest. That story right there. That's <laughs> it. Um, man, this has been great. I've enjoyed talking to you, Megan. I really appreciate you giving me your time to talk about this. My pleasure. Uh, and have a great day. You too, Jay. <laughs> One last thing about the power that beauty and art have in our life. Megan and I mentioned it when we were talking about the way that we seek out art and beauty and music. We seek it out at the most important moments of our lives, whether they be good or bad, to make it a part of our narrative. Whether out of pure joy, we look for some great song that becomes the soundtrack of the moment for us that we will remember forever. There are songs that are connected to very specific memories in my past. Mandolin Rain by Bruce Hornsby and the Range reminds me of driving down the road, a particular road in the neighborhood where I lived on a cold day when the heat wasn't working in my car and my car was old and big and brown. It was a 75 Cutlass Salon, I think. And man, I was driving down that road and it was, it was joy listening to that song. It was cold. It was rainy outside and something about it. And I still feel that today. It became the soundtrack of that moment. I remember going through something terrible one time, just a terrible, painful, isolating, depressing, depressing struggle moment for my life. 
and Eric Clapton's Tears in Heaven became very important to me during that time. It reminded me of the great pain and sorrow of other people, that I wasn't alone in struggling with the world that we found ourselves in and that people who had dealt with, that was much worse than I was dealing with. And Clapton created something beautiful in the pain of having lost his son. I still read uh, Grief Observed because there's something profound about watching, reading C.S. Lewis wrestle through the pain of losing his beloved wife. And as he comes to terms about what he's lost and what that loss means for him and for joy, there's just something about it that we seek out to give us strength, to give us peace. I think about David in 1 Samuel 16, when King Saul is tormented by an evil spirit, they send for David to play the lyre for him. And it said he loved David and sent word back to Jesse that he was going to keep David close to him. And he gave him an official position in the court. But he had David stay close, stay close to him. So that when he felt tormented, David would play the lyre and Saul would feel better. The music soothed him. And how many of us turn to the Psalms? the songs of the different songwriters of the Bible, looking in there for some connection to humanity, some common suffering, somebody that we know has struggled through something. And we take comfort in both their moment of struggle, but also the hope that they're able to introduce into our life of a growing relationship with God through it. I used to, when I was a young Christian, and by and by the young, I don't mean Years, although it looks young to me now in my mid-20s and then late-20s, I used to sing a particular psalm every night when I was in bed alone because I did not find the world comfortable. Even as I came to know Christ, I struggled with other aspects of it, but I would sing that psalm every night as I laid in bed and still will occasionally. I ask my wife to forgive me because she knows on the nights I'm singing, as rare as they may be, my soul needs it, needs it to connect back to the true and the good and the beautiful. Music, art, movies, they become ways that we process, pain and suffering, mourning, joy, celebration. They connect themselves to real things in our lives. They restore us to community. They restore us to hope. Maybe some days, maybe, and I've been there for this, some song, some movie, some piece of art created by another human being, something beautiful in this world, Maybe it's a walk in the neighborhood. Maybe it's a water. Maybe it's sitting by the, the Gulf of Mexico at 30A, just enjoying the soft sand and the beautiful water. Some part of beauty in this world. Maybe some days it just gave me enough to hold on for tomorrow. At the moment that I thought I had nothing left, that tiny moment of beauty reminds me that it's not all terrible and it can come in the weirdest places 
And I have lived my life by the idea that a good day with God can fix everything. And sometimes when you're in a rough place, the best thing that you can do today is to remember that he can fix it all tomorrow if it's his will. So just hang on a little longer. Beauty, music, art. It's more than a product that's sold to us. It's the Psalms. It's the Song of Solomon. It's the thing that helps you hang on. It's the soundtrack that you needed to celebrate. It's singing at the top of our lungs when we are filled with joy and finding that song that communicates that joy to us and to the world around us, a connection with other human beings. Rich Mullins was that for me. He was the first musician that I ever heard. And I said, this guy sings about God the way that I think and feel about God. And because of that, to this day, even though I found him after he was already dead, my family, even my youngest, they all know that Rich Mullins is an important part of my life. I used to sing one particular Rich Mullins song to each one of my kids when they were young. And I sang one of them to, to my son so much when he was younger. And then one day he got in the car and we were driving and I didn't realize it, but it was the first time I ever actually heard Rich Mullins singing the song. And when it was over, my little young son sitting back in his car seat, barely speaking, said, wow, that was great. And he was welcomed. Why is daddy always singing this to me? And then we heard it. The beauty touched him as well. Beautiful things created by our fellow man to represent or to carry through the beauty that inspired them to the rest of us in some way or another, whether it's to make us know that we're not alone. I'm a guy that loves tragedy when I feel bad. I watch depressing stuff. Or whether it's to feel good when we're feeling bad. My wife loves happy things and she loves movies that make her feel good when she's bad. No matter what it is, someone out there created something and we can connect to it and it can restore us to community, restore us to hope, get us back on the right path, or maybe just give us enough to hang on one more day. So make it. Go make beautiful things, simple, beautiful things. Go fill the world with beautiful things. Resist the urge and the message to feel bad and to be afraid. Make something beautiful. Thank you, Megan Allman, for joining us in the first ever interview section. Please remember, the video of that interview is at our YouTube channel. We will link to that on our Facebook page, Merely Human Ministries Incorporated, and on our Instagram account. So look for that so that you can actually see us and to share that. Thank you to all of the listeners, everybody who has sent encouragement about this web, about this podcast. I really appreciate it. And go make something beautiful. And remember, Olaf, all good things, all good things. All good things.